0: Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Don Eden Goldstein. Dawn is the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same, A Rock and Roll Journalist Opens Her Ears to God, The Thrill of the Chaste, and My Peace I Give You. Dawn began her writing career as a rock and roll historian. In the 1990s, she contributed to Billboard, The Village Voice, Mojo, and Salon, and she co-wrote the Encyclopedia of Singles. She went on to work in editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. At the age of 31, Goldstein, who was raised Jewish, experienced an encounter with the divine, which began a personal transformation that would eventually lead her to enter the Catholic Church. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. She has taught theology at universities in the United States, England, and India. Thank you so so much for joining us today, Dawn.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Yes. So Dawn, you were raised Jewish and your faith of origin was constantly in the backdrop of your life. However, you experienced many traumas, including the divorce of your parents, strange boyfriends of your mother in the home and early sexual abuse. This led to continuing depression and the constant need for love and affirmation from men. Looking back, what was missing, and how did you see glimpses of happiness in the darkness?
1: Well, that's a great question, Kimberly. Thank you. Uh, You know, certainly I suffered wounds in my childhood. Uh, First, the wound of my parents' divorce, and then uh, the wound of abuse. And, you know, really what was missing was a sense of any kind of meaning or purpose to suffering, Suffering, you know, seemed meaningless, and like many abuse victims, I carried misplaced guilt due to the abuse. It's very common for people who are abused, especially in childhood, to blame themselves for the evils that are, in fact, the sins of other people, the people who did these things to them. And again, like many victims, I wasn't even aware of the extent of my wounds. I I wasn't aware of the false messages that I was giving myself by carrying this misplaced guilt. And so I just knew that I desperately wanted to to be loved. And I thought that I was not Inherently lovable. And so those wounds were what I took into my life during my 20s as a rock and roll historian in New York City. And as I tell in my new memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same, I wanted to be taken out of myself. And so one of the ways that I sought to be taken out of myself was through music. I, it was transcendent for me, it was a means of escape and a means of believing that in some way I was part of something bigger and something higher. That was the kind of experience that I would have when I went to a concert or listened to a favorite record album.
0: Yeah, I thank you so much for your honesty in your memoir because I feel like it resonates with so many people, especially as you talked about victims who are carrying wounds from childhood. And again, you speak very candidly about depression and suicidal thoughts that follow you through your 20s. And just how the outlet for you being music helped you to kind of get to the next day or to have something to look forward to, a concert or something like that. And you can really see Mm -hmm. how you were gravitating towards that to transcend you out of the emptiness, I guess, of this existence, this life. And I think that that is something that resonates with so many people who don't see a way around their suffering or any meaning or purpose to suffering or even to their existence. Existence. So, I yes. felt that that candid look at your memoir and just being so brutally honest, I felt that that, I'm sure, has resonated with many, many people who have read the book.
1: Well, thank you so much for saying that, Kimberly. And I, I really appreciate what you said about the existential aspect with respect to that there are people who don't see meaning to their existence. And that's what happened. Because I had these wounds and I wasn't in touch with my wounds, I convinced myself that existence itself was something evil, something bad, or at least for me personally to exist was something bad. I recently saw an interview on the PBS NewsHour with Michael Gerson, the evangelical journalist who recently went public about his depression. In my case, what was diagnosed as depression, I only found out much later it had actually been misdiagnosed. The true diagnosis was PTSD, which post traumatic stress disorder from the abuse, which you know if one suspects that one has PTSD, it should be treated in a different way medically than ordinary depression, mm. um, but certainly, I could relate when I heard michael gerson 's interview recently. I could relate to something that he said. It reminded me of what my life was like before I had faith and before I received healing from my suicidal thoughts. Michael Gerson described this depression as being a disease that affects someone's perception of reality. Their perception of reality is fundamentally distorted. And you know that's what it did to me. It Just the idea of thinking of being as something that's evil and that's not fundamentally good, that's a distortion. So I try in my memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same, to capture what it felt like to live with that distortion. And it was interesting to try to go back to my thought back then, because now that I look at those thoughts from outside, I can see that they're obviously distorted. There are certain obsessions mm-hmm. that I had that were simply false obsessions where i was thinking oh well i can take everything back to when this boyfriend rejected me and that just you know confirmed for me that life is not worth living and you know now that seems crazy <laughs> to me it's so obviously a choice that i made to see everything through a distorted lens but when you're inside that distortion it is very hard to get out and i'm grateful to god for his divine providence in you know creating this chain of providential events and graces that eventually led me to faith in him and to finding healing. And I should add, you know, just for people who are listening, it wasn't purely what I would call a faith healing. I also sought help from a therapist. I reached out to friends and to Mm -hmm. family who could help me. So you know in no way do i intend to suggest to people that depression or ptsd is simply all in one's head as far as you know that it's simply something that can be changed with a brighter outlook or with faith we're not just spiritual creatures can really as you, as you know from your theological training i know you've studied theology and anthropology we're not just spirit we're also mind body and spirit and mm-hmm. When God brings us healing, he also can work through the healing of therapists and doctors for our mind and our body. But you know, for me, what I did experience was that all the healing I received, whether it was through the gift of faith or through practical means, All healing ultimately comes from God.
0: Right. The divine physician, right?
1: Yes, exactly. That's right. Yes.
0: And I like the fact that you report how all of this time you were being treated for one thing, this certain kind of depression, I'm sure, giving medication or maybe therapy, according to that, just you know, having this disposition of depression and meanwhile, maybe not quite looking at the root of the PTSD, which a lot of this might have stemmed from as well. Yes. You know, root causes because maybe they have pushed it down as thinking, well, that was just my fault or something that happened right, in right. childhood or, you know, that has nothing to do with this depression 20 years later or something like that. So right, I mean,
1: that, that is really a problem where, you know, if a person is blaming herself, for something mistakenly, then she's not even going to think of that as a wound that can actually be helped. And that's why it's so important for those of us who have suffered any kind of abuse to be willing to revisit, you know, in our mind and, and hopefully with the help of a, an experienced therapist or an experienced and confidential spiritual director, we need to be willing to revisit these episodes in order to have some, someone from outside point out to us that actually we did nothing wrong. Right. And to you label
0: know, it as post-traumatic yeah. stress, because I'm sure a That's- lot of people think, well, I, I wasn't in the war. I didn't see anything necessarily horrific, just this event happened to me? And how can that really be categorized under, you know, what my concept of post-traumatic stress disorder
1: is? Right, right. And, you know, that's a really important point. They've actually done studies of the brains of people who experienced childhood sexual abuse and people who experienced war combat. And they have found that these people who suffer PTSD from one or the other, their brains look quite similar.
0: Wow. Uh, so, you know,
1: on a certain level, Trauma is trauma, and so if we've suffered trauma and we think we have wounds from that, we need to get specialized help. That's something I talk about more in my earlier book, My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. At the end of My Piece, I Give You, I have a reader's guide where... I recommend that victims of childhood sexual abuse get both spiritual and psychological help. And ideally, one should reinforce the other. Mm. In fact, if one does have a spiritual director and a therapist, one can even authorize the director and therapist to speak to one another so that it's like having your own medical team.
0: Yeah, That's true. Medical
1: spiritual team.
0: That's true. And for many years, you rubbed shoulders with rock musicians in Lower Manhattan's hottest clubs, becoming known as one of the youngest and most prolific female rock historians. At one point, you described being in a bar only blocks away from Pope John Paul II, who was speaking at Giant Stadium. Meanwhile, you were chatting with members of REM and famous MTV anchors. The majority of society would envy you much more than John Paul II's audience at Giant Stadium. So what Mm -hmm. message do you have for them?
1: You know, simply that I now realize years later I missed out. I should have been there (laughs) watching John Paul because, you know, that experience of, you know, being around famous human beings is not as great an experience as learning how to be, as a a nun once put it to me, famous to God. (sighs) Um, You know, that's more important but having said that, I don't have like disdain for those episodes of my life. In Sunday will never be the same. You notice that when I do write about that experience at that concert, the night that John Paul was at Giant Stadium, I don't like deride the concert or, you know, the experience I had there because God actually reached me there, too. Mm-hmm. God reached me in the way that I was best able to be reached at that time. He reached me in an unexpected way through the kindness of a musician that I admired. Um, So, you know, that's part of the message of Sunday will never be the same, that even if we're far from God, God can reach us where we are. And, And also with regard to like my love of music, I wanted to show that rock and roll in and of itself is not the devil's music. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly there are uplifting songs and there are songs that bring us down and we have to be careful about what goes into our minds and hearts that it's, you know, things that raise us up. But, you know, even before I knew God, there were certain things that I listened to musically that did bring me up and now understand and this is something I try to convey that every experience I had of the good, the true and the beautiful Even when I was not yet a believer, every one of those experiences brought me in some mysterious way closer to God.
0: Absolutely. And I think that gives a lot of hope to people who are desperately praying for family or friends uh-huh. that may yes. seem distant, you know, and just
1: right, feeling right.
0: like, is there anything that will ever reach them? Will God ever be able to reach them through whatever various lifestyle or media or hobby that they're turned on to? But as you said, the true, the good, and the beautiful, God reaches in so many ways and through so many yes. different experiences that people People are drawn to. And that is the beauty of how he can evangelize us through nature, through art, through movies, through music, really anything.
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it shows that God is not limited by our various ways of blocking him out. You know, that's not to say that God is ungentlemanly, so to speak. I mean, if we really are determined, you know, with full knowledge to keep sitting and not let him in, he respects that. But if we just, you know, in our ignorance, we really want joy and are seeking joy in things that are not God, God isn't limited by that. He can reach us where we are. That God uh, was able to break through to me even when I wasn't around people who were Christians and I wasn't living a Christian lifestyle.
0: Right. Also, I was completely struck by you speaking of your virginity as an albatross, an embarrassing keepsake of your juvenile dreams that made you self-conscious and kept you from being able to interact with a potential boyfriend like a normal person. In our current hookup culture, getting the virginity albatross, quote unquote, out of the way is a common mindset. How did you escape the hookup culture's grips and even get to the point of consecrating your celibacy to the sacred heart of Jesus and Immaculate Heart of Mary?
1: Great question. Well, thank you. With respect to that line that I wrote about it being an albatross, just to make clear, that's a line that's spoken in my mind before I was Christian. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's certainly not something that I would say now, <laughs> looking back. Um, but I try to make my book more convincing by writing in whatever was my interior voice at a certain time. Well, I so. thought
0: that that line resonated so much. Coming from a secular past myself, I think that that is 100% accurate to how people felt when I was in high school, and I'm sure <laughs> even more so now with so much more accepted. But I think that that was the experience that I often came into contact with, that this is just something you need to get past and get out of the way because you don't want to be lumped into this virginity club.
1: Right. right. And that is absolutely the mindset that one finds in the wider culture, in secular culture. So how does one get from there to where I am now, having dedicated my celibacy to the sacred heart through Mary's immaculate heart? Well, you know, I think one gets there by starting to think about what do I really want? Because if I really want love, if I really want satisfaction, then who and what really satisfies who and what is really love. You know, Certainly I went through a this period of discernment with respect to whether I was called to marriage because that is the default vocation. So as a Christian, I spent some years trying to meet a husband and, and also just discerning if I was in fact called to that. And what I found ultimately was that as I was studying theology, I just loved what I was studying so much that I couldn't bear the thought of not being able to teach it. I knew that if I were to make myself available for marriage, I would have to be willing to relocate, you know, for my husband and maybe might have to relocate somewhere where I wouldn't be able to teach. And I just thought about, you know, do I really want to have all of these different requirements? Mm -hmm. You know, well... I'll marry you but only if I get to do exactly what I want to do and and that sort of thing. And you know, some people can certainly do that and hey, I'm not knocking people who have been to medical school or law school or have any kind of specialized, you know, education where they feel like this is part of my vocation and marriage is part of my vocation. In my case, I felt called specifically to teach on the seminary level and to serve the church in a certain way. And that did limit where I could live and where I could work and that sort of thing. And I just thought, if this is something that I feel so called to, then I really need to think about whether this is something that God, in fact, wants me to do in a manner that's just dedicated to him. Um, And I, I realized ultimately that, you know, God wanted me to have my joy in a certain way through serving him as a writer, as a professor, in a way that I couldn't do if I were married. So, you know, ultimately, vocation is about joy. So I Made that dedication of my celibacy, which I renew every year, and whenever I renew it, I say to God, you know, okay, God, my joy has to come from You and nobody else. So it's <laughs> up to You. Balls in Your court now. You know, here you go. And I think God respects that. He, he wants me to recognize my dependence upon Him for everything.
0: And I thought finding out that piece of your life that you had made this consecration was a really beautiful end after reading Sunday will never be the same and your past work and just hearing that constant echo of wanting a guy and maybe he'll be here and maybe he'll be there and I know we were speaking about this earlier how so many women do get caught in that cyclical mindset of you know I'll go to this and or that. or even on pilgrimage or to this talk or that talk and always in the back of your mind scanning the room or thinking maybe that's him or maybe this is him or maybe I'll meet him here or maybe he's looking at this same exact invitation that I'm looking at and you know our our eyes will lock when we walk through and you know the Holy Spirit will be hovering for only us to see and we'll (laughs) know without a doubt that this is it and it becomes almost like a sickness, you know, that you. It does. You really can. I mean, you're like a slave to this mentality. And I know from going through my 20s single and in the D.C. area and just it's starting to get more and more and hearing it constantly from other women, it's like, well, you've said two words to the guy and you're already drawing up wedding invitations and things like that in your mind. So it really can become unhealthy. And I heard that as part of your story as well with almost every single man. And then if it didn't work. It's crushing. It's because I'm unlovable. You know, it didn't work out because I'm never able to be marriage material anyway. Or, you know, Satan just really used that, like lured you in through this hope. And then as soon as it didn't work out, dashed that hope and ripped it to shreds and made it your fault.
1: I really do not envy single young adults, you know, having lived that life. And at the same time, you know, I want to encourage them and give them hope. I mean, that's why I rewrote my first book, The Thrill of the Chaste, on chastity after I became Catholic. I had first written it while I was still in RCIA. And I have to say, you know, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone else. I'd say, you know, wait to write a book until you've been Catholic for a while if you're writing about spirituality. So, you know, eight years after the original edition of The Thrill of the Chase, I published through Ave Maria Press the Catholic edition, where I really am writing at this point with experience of the Catholic young adult scene and mm-hmm. trying to write, especially for people who are on the verge of losing hope, yes. to encourage them to to hang in there.
0: And your mother converted to Catholicism when you were in college before returning to a Jewish church that accepted Jesus as Savior. You had exposure to Christianity through this and other influences and tried to connect with Jesus, but your efforts fell short. How did G.K. Chesterton begin to change that for you?
1: Well, Chesterton was this you know author I had never heard of, and he first kind of crossed my radar— when I was 27 and doing a telephone interview with a power pop musician from Los Angeles named Ben Eshbach, who was in a band called The Sugar Plastic. And I, as I was interviewing him, I asked him, what he was reading, and he said that he was reading this G.K. Chesterton novel called The Man Who Was Thursday, and having no idea who Chesterton was, I just went and picked up this novel thinking that if I read it, it would give me something to talk about with Ben Eschbach the next time he and his band came to town, mm. and what I got out of reading it, uh, which I describe, is that I got this really powerful and deep understanding of what it meant to really have this longing for wholeness and the sense that God wants us to be well, wants us to be whole. And I had this sense in reading it that I was not well, I was not whole. And as I read on, I found that Chesterton wasn't just writing from this sort of triumphalist idea where, oh, just become a Christian and you'll be great and everything will be rosy. He was rather writing from this perspective that only in Christianity do we have a God who has an interior knowledge of what it feels like to suffer in Jesus Christ. God had that experience of suffering in his human nature. And so even though God didn't suffer in his divinity, he has that memory of suffering, which is a powerful memory. And so discovering even that concept in Chesterton of suffering having meaning, you know, blew my mind. I had never thought that suffering could really have any connection with God or it could have any meaning in light of God. So this idea that God could sympathize with me was amazing. And again, you know, you and I are theologians, we can say it's God in Jesus Christ. But then, who is Jesus Christ? He's God, right. you know. So, even if God and His divinity can't suffer, it's the same God. It's the same person who has this memory.
0: Right. And Uh, people do often wonder how to reach Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith. And I know you said throughout your spiritual journey coming from Judaism, Christians kept telling you to ask God for something seemingly impossible in order to prove himself to you. So what did you think of this tactic? Did you think it was effective in your own life? Or would you use a different approach in sharing the presence of Christ with a non-Christian?
1: Well, I think that sort of in desperation, you know, if you're really desperate to try to, you know, bring someone to God and nothing else works, you can suggest that to them to ask God for something impossible. But, you know, I think ultimately, you know, the lasting conversions don't really come about through one miracle. They come about through a person developing a relationship with God. So I, you know, had people telling me to ask for a miracle, and I actually had these different seemingly miraculous or, you know, or just
0: Right. You said he always came through, but you still were like, well, I don't know if that necessarily means that I'm going to start believing in him or, you know, necessarily have a relationship with him.
1: Right, right. And I also had this one big prayer that wasn't answered. I I was always asking God for the husband, the husband Mm -hmm. who was going to solve all my problems and make life worth living and so on and and so forth. So, you know, even those, you know, smaller miracles, which were pretty amazing things, I could just sort of shrug off as saying, well, I didn't get the one big thing that I really wanted. So I guess that's out of God's reach. Right. And it was really only divine grace coming to me in part through the openness that I had after reading Chesterton that helped me to realize that whether or not I had the human love of a husband, there was a divine love that really wanted to be in relationship with me. And in Sunday will never be the same. I tell about how I ultimately said yes to that love.
0: So when you speak to other Jewish people now, how do you usually approach your conversion, especially for those who might not quite understand it or think that you've left this very deep, familial, generational, biblical faith?
1: Well, you know, personal experience is irreducible. And so if I say, you know, this is how I had an experience of God, it's hard for people to argue that. Mm -hmm. So I don't witness so much through apologetics as just through being a witness, being someone who's encountered God. I mean, this is something that Pope Francis talks about quite a lot and Pope Benedict talked about it before him and John Paul II. I think in some sense, we've lost as Catholics the sort of naturalness of speaking about God as someone we know and have experience of, kind of left it to the Protestants to speak about a personal relationship with God. But, um, you know, we're not going to be, you know, ultra sort of the parody of evangelicalism and say, you know, Jesus is my homeboy or my boyfriend or <laughs> have you you know it's not like that but it is true to say that Jesus is someone we know through experience of him in us and acting through us and with us. And he's someone who we meet at every Mass. And, you know, that's something that, you know, ideally comes through in our behavior and our thought so that we don't have to always use arguments with people. You know, like that saying that's falsely attributed to uh, St. Saint Saint Francis. Francis. <laughs> About preaching the gospel and using words if necessary. Right,
0: right. Were you ever able to speak with that musician about G.K. Chesterton when his band came yes, back
1: to town? Yes. yes. Well, actually, I-, I did. But then I also saw him years later when he came to hear me give a talk, wow. us, which was wonderful. And he was just very kind and, you know, not on the same walk that I was faith wise, but also not anti-God. But he played a part that-
0: in it. I mean, he whether did, he really. was aware or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he he seemed thankful for that. I was glad that he appreciated it.
0: Tell us about your encounter with the divine at age 31 that you mentioned that kind of shook everything up in your life.
1: Right. Well, that was an experience that I had in a dream where I had this experience of um, actually being half awake, half asleep, and hearing this voice of a woman saying, some things are not meant to be known some things are meant to be understood. And it really did shake me up and it made me wonder, you know, what was this? Was it my imagination? Was it something supernatural? And what I came to believe was that it was a message about God and I came to connect it with Romans 5.1 about being justified by faith, that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I realized that I had been trying to get to know God scientifically through collecting evidence about him, but that what I really needed to do was to understand God experientially. And the only way that I could do that, have that experience of God, was through giving myself over to him in faith and just making a surrender to him. So I did that. And since my closest family member who was Christian was my mother, who was at that time away from Catholicism, she was living as a Protestant at that time. Praise God, she's back to Catholicism oh, now. I, did,
0: um, I was wondering. Yeah, <laughs> she ever yeah. Came
1: back. Uh, so, you know, because of that, I surrendered, you know, in a Protestant, born again fashion. But it did lead me to getting baptized and beginning to live as a Christian. And in Sunday will never be the same. I I tell also about how I went from being Protestant to being Catholic. And gosh, I mean, that we should really save for uh, another interview, because I know know. we're almost out of time right now. But as you know, it had to do with St. Maximilian Kolbe's intercession.
0: And that will be my final question. But I wanted to ask you on that, just out of curiosity, do you believe now that it was the voice of Our Lady? I know that you were mentioning in the book how your stepfather said God could come to you in the voice of a woman certainly or any manifest in any way shape or form have you processed in any way now in your catholicism that it may have been the voice of our lady
1: i simply don't know i I just think that certainly it is a marian kind of message that you know certainly the grace that brought me that message was from mary even if the words were not her actual voice, because Mary's the mediatrix of grace. So all graces come through her. That's how the Holy Spirit is dispensed to us through her hands. I mean, certainly we have an an immediate relationship with the Holy Spirit through our baptism. But at the same time, it's through Mary that we have the Holy Spirit at all, because we have the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And Jesus came through the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. So basically, any way you slice it... (laughs) When we get a good message, that's grace. Mary's in there somewhere, right. um, and so you know the most important thing is that that message helped to lead me to surrender myself to God, and that that yes that I made then is a yes that continues in my life as a Catholic, and for that I'm really grateful to God, to to Jesus, to our our Lady, to the the saints.
0: Right. That's all I could think was that was that was Mary. That was kind of my <laughs> gut feeling, and I just wondered if that would ever be further unpacked when you did convert to Catholicism and come to the church, or if that was something that was just kind of be left to unravel in your heart.
1: Yeah. Well, I just like to sort of leave these things to understand in the next life. There'll be a lot of right. mysteries unsolved then.
0: And then my last question is about when you lost your job at the New York Post for making a bold pro-life edit on a piece about in vitro fertilization. Yet that ordeal led you to St. Maximilian Colby. And although you weren't Catholic and didn't understand the intercession of the saints as Catholics do, you did understand that God was leading you and that he was using St. Maximilian Colby to reach you as well. It seemed at that point that you had a great amount of peace once you read about st maximilian colby despite losing your job and despite going through this turbulent time in your life of uncertainty yet again For some reason, St. Maximilian Kolbe, his intercession did give you a peace. So can you explain how that worked? And I thought it was kind of funny because previously you had said that Catholics often asked you, oh, you're Jewish. Have you heard of St. Edith Stein? They kind of tried to push St. Edith Stein. But then the person that would reach you would be Maximilian Kolbe, who, although he wasn't Jewish, did die among Jews and for a Jewish man.
1: Well, no, not for a Jewish man, for a Catholic man. But oh, was he it a certainly... Catholic
0: man? Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. There, it was mostly Catholics at Auschwitz at that time. Wow, um,
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, or, or largely Catholics, yes. But yes, uh, well, I can totally understand you wanting to ask me that because it is a big event in my faith life. St. Maximilian Kolbe is a great pro-life saint. He's also a patron saint of journalists. And the way in which he came into my life was at a time when I was seeking a patron saint of journalists, because I was about to be fired from my job at the New York Post. And so, you know, I'll leave that for listeners to (laughs) discover. But certainly, that whole experience taught me that the saints are not like a favor bank in the sky. It's not about, you know, nepotism, where you get close to a saint, and then the saint becomes your special person who does favors for you, you know, it really that God doesn't, need the saints to answer our prayers. He wants the saints to intercede for us because he wants us to be one in him, in God. And he wants us to understand that uh, the saints are in union with him so that when we're united to the saints, we're actually closer to God. That's something that the Second Vatican Council says in Lumen Gentium, that our communion with the saints draws us closer to Christ, not farther away. And I think that's something important for people to know if they have any hesitation about asking a saint's intercession
0: right my guest tonight has been dawn eden goldstein and dawn i want to ask you how can we find you how can we find this book your other books and your writing
1: oh thank you for asking well certainly sunday will never be the same and all my books can be found through any bookseller i also i have links to all of them on my blog the dawn patrol which is at dawn eden d-a-w-n-e-d-e-n dot and you can also find out more about me and my postulate through twitter at the handle at dawn of mercy
0: and we'll have all of that linked on this post as well so listeners can just click and head right over thank you so much for your time tonight dawn
1: thank you Kimberly and God bless you
0: no power in power.